You turn to Acts, the fifth chapter. Nobody ever has called the book of Acts a dull book. Something was happening every minute. These early Christians who were on fire for God tackled the world, the flesh, and the devil in a head-on collision and soon got into plenty of trouble. That was before the sad day came when you could be a Christian and not cause any trouble. By the time we reach the fifth chapter, this trouble assumes several forms. The chapter begins with trouble inside the church, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. Things have rolled along victoriously up until now, and all of a sudden we read, but there was trouble within. The church has always been harmed most by trouble within. But this time the church was not so anemic as now, and so the poison was soon cleared up. Then, in the second place, trouble loomed on the outside. Verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. Peter and the apostles were brought before the council, the religious authorities. True Christianity through the ages has always clashed with organized religion. But uh, Peter and the others minced no words, and this speech is a classic. Verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey. I'm not surprised that the next verse tells us, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Uh, why, of course, why not? A sermon like that, with the Trinity in it, and Calvary in it, and the resurrection in it, and repentance in it, and forgiveness in it, and the gift of the Holy Spirit in it, plainly charging the rulers with murder, and boldly claiming to be Christ's witnesses. I tell you, a sermon like that is bound to cut to the heart even a religious council, which is often the hardest crowd on earth to move. Then trouble showed up in another form. Trouble on the inside, trouble on the outside, and then trouble on the fence. Verse 34. Then stood up. One in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting him himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, 
and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now Dr. Gamaliel, this famous teacher of the law, stands up. And uh, he says, be cautious, be careful. He cites two cases on record, two men, Thutis and Judas, who had led popular movements that had come to naught, and he advised suspended judgment if this counsel be of God. Why, uh, you can't prevail against it, but uh, be cautious. There was a time when I was much impressed with Gamaliel. I thought he made a great speech. It sounded sober and level-headed and reasonable. But the years have changed my convictions about many men, and I've had a radical change of mind about Gamaliel. It is one of the signs of the times that the newer commentaries all speak highly of Gamaliel, most of them at least. But, uh, well, I'm thinking of the two Alexander the Greats, Alexander McLaren and Alexander White, who felt differently about Gamaliel. The fact is, Gamaliel was an appeaser. He was the apostle of compromise, and uh, he was one of the first of those protagonists of that tolerance that has disgraced the pages of history through the centuries. There was no excuse for Gamaliel. He was a teacher of Israel, and he knew these things. He knew the scriptures about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had come and had fulfilled these scriptures in Gamaliel's time and right before Gamaliel's eyes, for this thing was not done in a corner. This was no time for suspended judgment. There wasn't anything to suspend judgment about. Gamaliel should have taken his stand with the apostles. There is a tradition that he did, but it's more likely that he lived and died a Pharisee. And it's to his eternal disgrace that like Meroz, he came not to the help of the Lord against the mighty. He had the chance of his lifetime, and instead of casting his lot with Jesus Christ, he came up with smooth platitudes and wise maxims, with diplomacy and caution. He was an opportunist, if there ever was one. He decided that he would be neither for nor against, so he took to the fence, and there he sits, as the first of that line of straddlers who have caused the church more trouble than trouble within or trouble without. God would rather a man be on the wrong side of the fence than on the fence. The fact of the business is, when he's on the fence, he's on the wrong side of the fence. The worst enemies of the gospel are not the uh, opposers, but the appeasers. Gamaliel made three mistakes. First, he made a false comparison. And although he had the apostles immediately in mind, he was really comparing Jesus Christ with Thutis and Judas, for it was Jesus Christ who started this movement. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. This movement is Jesus Christ. 
And you cannot compare Jesus Christ with Thutis or Judas or anybody else because Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. He admits of no comparison. He is an absolute. There's a popular tendency today in some quarters to airily measure Jesus in the same mold we use for ordinary men and to compare the Christian movement with man-made religions and enterprises. Some of it has a scholarly smell, sounds honest, but is utterly beside the point. Paul wasted no time comparing the gospel with current religion and trying to convince his hearers that the gospel was the best answer to the world's ills that had as yet come along. He declared it to be the only answer that ever had or ever would come along, that it was all in a class to itself and comparisons were out of order because Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, the first and the last, Without him, nothing can be done about salvation, and with him, nothing more need be done about salvation. And if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be damned. Thutis and Judas and all men and movements may be compared to each other, but never with Jesus Christ. God has spoken, God has come, God has lived, he has died, he has risen again in his son. That's finality. And all these Gamaliels who are trying to liken him to something or somebody else are trying to compare the incomparable. The second mistake that Gamaliel made, he suggested a false criterion. We will measure this movement by the success of it. If it works, all right, time will tell. Now, beloved success may be the standard gauge of this world. Nothing succeeds like success. But earth's yardstick does not apply to Jesus Christ. According to the viewpoint of his time, Jesus Christ was a failure. He died in disgrace, the death of a criminal, and his followers were scattered, and uh, 19 centuries have gone, and still it looks as though Caesar and not Christ were on the throne, and that the world, the flesh, and the devil have things going pretty much their way. And instead of the world being converted, the Lord said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Uh, that certainly is not success, as this world measures it, nor is it true in the things of Christ that time will tell, but eternity will tell. And we are waiting for the verdict of eternity. And the man who postpones taking a stand for Jesus Christ until he sees how the gospel movement will succeed will live and die with Gamaliel because visible success has never been the proof of Jesus Christ and his followers. Uh, they're the scum and the offscouring of the earth and although God often blesses Christians with wealth and advancement in material things, it's purely incidental. The man who tries to use this world's textbooks on success in the things of the Spirit will end up like a fellow I heard about who offered to sell a set of books on how to succeed for two months room and board. You cannot make it work. It is not the true criterion. In the third place, Gamaliel arrived at a false conclusion. Refrain from these men and let them alone. But you can't let them alone. You cannot let the Christian movement alone, and certainly you cannot let Jesus Christ alone. It is absolutely impossible for you to play hands-off 
concerning the cause of Jesus Christ and concerning Christ. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. You cannot, it's absolutely impossible to suspend judgment about Jesus Christ and do nothing. And this polite business of waiting to see how it all turns out adding up all the evidence and making up our minds later when we think all the facts are in, puts man on the pedestal and Jesus on trial. The fact is we're guilty and condemned sinners with the wrath of God abiding, but with mercy offered, and until we definitely trust Christ, we have definitely rejected him. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already, and that leaves absolutely no place for fence cities, none whatever. You cannot leave Jesus Christ alone. You are with him or against him. You are gathering or scattering. You are condemned or you're not condemned. So Gamaliel was utterly mistaken in what seems at first a sound and sane position. He was right on one point. If the gospel was of man, it would come to naught. If it were of God, you couldn't overthrow it. That's right. But if you never get any further than those ifs, you die in your sins. And until we decide that the things of God and join it, then we are on the outside. We sometimes saying, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Now several people tried neutralism in the New Testament in one way or another. The parents of the man born blind in John 9 tried it. They said, You'll be excommunicated if you take sides with him, and so we're not sticking our necks out. He's old enough to speak for himself. We're not talking. And there are those today who, for fear of excommunication, and I don't necessarily mean the Roman Catholic kind, but for fear of one kind or other of excommunication, and there are other kinds, do not take a clear stand with Jesus Christ. Then there was the rich young ruler. There was a good boy. I'm sure the neighbors must have been worried to death hearing about what a good boy that one is across the street. Why can't you be like that? He had kept all the commandments, but he wouldn't sell out to Jesus Christ. And he was neutral for the love of money, the root of all evil. And then, of course, there was Simon Peter warming at the enemy's fire, and that's where neutralism starts. Uh, when you start warming out at the... Uh, uh, meeting places of this age, you're well on the way toward such a miserable conclusion as was reached in this case. He was afraid of danger and afraid of the cross and afraid of shame and reproach, and he disowned his Lord and denied his discipleship. Now, beloved, our Lord is on trial in this godless age, and a lot of church members are denying him out in the courtyards of this world because they can't take it, and they're denying him in the shop and in the office and in their social life and on the campus and at home. They're ashamed of him. They're ashamed of what identification with him means. They're ashamed of his cross. And he said, Whosoever will be ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now let me ask you pointedly tonight, is there any area in which you live where you are scared to stand up for Jesus Christ? And are you, have you begun to warm at the enemy's fire and have you begun to listen to its chatter and have you begun to laugh at its jokes and have you gradually begun to succumb to its uh, brainwashing until you're ashamed of Jesus Christ and when you're put on the spot, you deny him? 
but I think the outstanding illustration is Pilate's wife. Have nothing to do with this man. Now, you cannot do any such thing as that. It is impossible advice because every man does something about Jesus Christ. Pilate called for a washbowl, but there is no washbowl big enough to hold water enough to remove our responsibility for what we do about Jesus Christ. No man can wash his hands of Jesus Christ. Every one of us had a part in his crucifixion. You can't pass the book. Until you receive him, you reject him. And until you crown him, you crucify him. Pilate's wife, Pilate's washbowl, and back of both stood Pilate's weakness, and the weakness lay in this, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Ah, that is what finally decided. It's Caesar or Christ, and Pilate chose Caesar. When a man's first loyalty is to Caesar or to anything else but Jesus Christ, there never was a washbowl big enough to hold the remedy for his guilt. Now, this school of Gamaliel is very popular today. Dante said, The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in periods of moral crisis maintain neutrality. We used to say that silence is golden, but when it comes to the things of God, silence is not golden, it's yellow. It is downright cowardice. During the Reformation, they had several characters. There was old Martin Luther, and then there was a smooth fellow named Erasmus. Oh, that fellow was an eel. He could glide around. They said he could shade yes till it sounded like no and burnish up no till it had passed for yes. They said that the people of academic culture, the serene intellectual indifference sided with Erasmus, the moderates throughout Europe, the gentlemen of the courts, the semi-skeptical intelligentsia of the universities told the golden mouth apostle of compromise that he was right. But the heart of Christianity beat with old rough, rugged Martin Luther. Now in Gamaliel's day, as today, it was simply a case of trying to be, as I indicated a night or two ago, trying to be neither nor in a universe that is either or. And Gamaliel tried it. He said, I'm not taking sides. When you make up your mind that you're not taking sides about Jesus Christ, you've already taken sides because a Christian is one-sided. He's bound to be. When you say you don't take sides, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Uh, the uh, Amplified New Testament renders uh, follow me in uh, the call of the first disciples, join my party. It's a good reading. And if you're not with the party, you're outside the party. There's a verse over in Ecclesiastes, two of them. Seven, chapter 7, verses 16 17 that has caused, caused a lot of argument. Be not righteous over much, Neither make thyself overwise, why shouldst thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish, why shouldst thou die before thy time? Now the Bible scholars have had quite a picnic over that one, trying to decide what it means. They've differed, but I think it's the creed of the middle of the rotor. Be moderately wicked and moderately religious. Moderatism stands with the multitude at Carmel. You remember when old Elijah, thank God you could always tell which side he was on, how long a whole chief between two opinions? You know what that crowd said? They didn't. They answered him not a word. 
that Fifth Amendment outfit, said, ah, we're going to wait and see which way the fire falls. And that's Laodiceanism in the New Testament. It's lukewarmness. It's neither nor. I would thou were cold or hot. I would thou were either or. And, uh, the Lord has no patience with this sort of business. Some people say, but isn't it better to be lukewarm than to be cold? Now, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Our Lord said no. It's a new kind of logic. Isn't it better to join church and support it, although unsaved, than stay out altogether? A lot of people think so, because a lot of them are doing it. Uh, isn't it better to go halfway than never start? Our Lord said, I would, you were one or the other. These folks who say, now, I'm not going off the deep end in religion. I'm not going to commit myself too far. God help them. God bring them to repentance. Working both sides of the street, sipping the wine at the Lord's table on Sunday morning, sipping a cocktail on Monday night. This sort of business makes sacred things common, dignifies the profane, slaps God on the back in cheap familiarity with the big buddy upstairs, makes Christianity a cheap commodity. It's a product of this age of conformity and peaceful coexistence, and it glorifies the great general average and the lowest common denominator. The devil pulls down the high and builds up the low, cheapens religion, makes his own product respectable, advertised liquor, not with bowery bums, but with men of distinction. Uh, plays up as the Seagram Company did around Christmas time, that pitiful picture of a little boy's shoes, and said, now, he's following in your footsteps, so you, Father, drink our product moderately. And then they imagine they're sprouting wings after they've said that. And they tell us that alcoholism is a disease. Well, if it is a disease, it's the only one I know of that we're spending $350 million a year to spread. The <laughs> Bible doesn't say no paralytic shall get to heaven. It says no drunkard will make the grade. They tell us that uh, moderatism is the thing now, but it's the moderate drinker who causes most of the trouble. He causes the automobile wrecks. If he's totally drunk, you throw him in the back seat, but it's the moderate drinker under the wheel causes most of the trouble. And today there's a tendency to try to mop up the floor while we leave the faucet running. It's getting so that a lot of preachers are just preaching temperance instead of total abstinence and condemn drunkenness and never say a word about the liquor business. So we're living in a mysterious time. Tobacco is advertised not by pictures of lung cancer victims, but by attractive girls. Uh, Dr. Oxner down in New Orleans of the famous cancer clinic down there said if there were the same amount of evidence to prove that Brooklyn Bridge is unsafe as there is to prove what tobacco has to do with lung cancer. They'd tear the thing down 24 hours. Uh, 
And this moderatism makes dancing respectable by the sanction of the church and puts it under religious auspices with prominent churchmen endorsing it. And Hollywood, that cesspool of moral putrefaction, portrays the Bible and the clergy bless it. And TV stars end up worldly programs with a hymn. And moderatism approves all of this and says, why, it's lovely. And they think you're a fool if you take a stand. But this is Gamaliel-ism. Moderatism pulls down the high to mediocrity and pulls up the low to respectability and takes black and white and smudges them into an indefinite gray. A Christian friend of mine told me the other day that his son, who is a fine young Christian businessman, was called into the boss's office the other day, and the boss said, Now look, the trouble with you is you're still thinking in terms of black and white, and don't you know that today everything's gray? That's Gamaliel-ism. And when the Lord's sheep turn gray, that makes black sheep less conspicuous and far more comfortable. Christians in spotted garments are not so disturbing to sinners as the saints who walk in white. Gamalialism is peaceful coexistence. It's more interested in keeping everything quiet in Jerusalem than it is in taking a stand with Jesus Christ. Oh, but you say we must be diplomatic. Well, nationally, we've been diplomatic now for 25 years, and we've never lost as much ground as we have being diplomatic. 25 more years, there won't be any ground to lose. I'm glad Patrick Henry was not a diplomat. They'd tried that. That red-headed Virginian got up in that old church in Richmond and said, it's time to turn. Give me liberty or give me death. Today they'd say, give me liberty, death, or peaceful coexistence with George III. <laughs> when uh, Mr. Spurgeon passed away, uh, Joseph Parker had this comment to make about the great preacher. The only colors that Mr. Spurgeon knew were black and white. In all things, he was definite. With Mr. Spurgeon, you were either up or down, in or out, alive or dead. As, get this now, as for middle zones and graded lines and light compounded with shadow in a graceful exercise of give and take, he only looked upon them as heterodox, implacable enemies of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Ah, you don't hear much of that these days. This is the school of Gamaliel now. I read book reviews nowadays, and sometimes I'm astounded where I read some of them, and they say, now here's a book. It's got some terrible things in it, some things that deny the faith, but there's a lot of good in the book, so I'd read the book, which is like saying, now this glass of milk's got some arsenic in it, but most of it's good milk, so I would advise you to drink the milk. We find a popular attitude today among students and our young people, and they got it from us, and I'm not lambasting them. Uh, they're not committing themselves all out. And some of these young fellows say, well, nobody has the answers yet. The facts are not all in. Next year we may discover new truths that'll make all this out of date, and so I'm not committing myself. I'm not coming all out for Jesus Christ. And so on they go, ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I remember a lad some years ago who talked that way to me. There he was, 
sitting up in the stratospheric heights looking down on everything and he said I haven't made up my mind yet I'm looking the thing over and one of these days when I have weighed the evidence and assembled the facts then I'm going to do something about it and I said now listen you've already done something about it ever since you could make a choice between right and wrong you've already decided against Jesus Christ or you've decided for Jesus Christ you're already decided what you need to do is make the other decision and be converted and turned and repent and change your mind and be saved and take your stand with my Lord. And they like to say, well, I'm open-minded. Uh, I'm open for the evidence. Well, my friend, when it comes to Jesus Christ, I'm not open-minded. I made up my mind a long time ago. I'm open-minded on some things. I don't know whether anybody lives on Mars or not. Don't care much. I'm open-minded on that, but I made up my mind about Jesus Christ a long time ago. You go around with your mouth open all the time, never clamp down on food, and you will starve to death. <laughs> you go around with your mind open and never clamp down on the revelation of God, you will starve your soul. This modern indecision has put our age into a twilight zone and conditions of low visibility, and nothing is important enough now to contend for it. The devil does great business when the moral sensibilities of men are doped like that. One of our senators said recently, too many people in our nation do not believe anything with conviction. The values of life that were clear to our pilgrim fathers have become dim and fuzzy in outline. Even the beer ads make much of this America of kindliness, of friendship, of good-humored tolerance. Old Gresham Machen used to say, the most important things are not the things about which we are agreed, but the things for which men will fight. But you see, we're living in an age that is almost overcome with fatigue of the body, of the mind, and of the spirit. And the languor of the age has got us. And everybody's too dead tired to line up with Peter and the gospel. It's more comfortable to suspend judgment and go to bed. Now, some men, to be sure, have made mistakes on the side of Peter and the gospel. He made some himself. But he never made that supreme mistake of waiting to follow Jesus Christ until he saw how it would turn out. Thank God he did throw his blundering, impetuous self into the Savior's coast from the beginning, and although for a while almost everything he ever said and did was a mistake, Dr. Barnhouse used to say he was the most American of all the disciples. <laughs> Pretty near every comment he made was a blunder at the beginning. But his heart was not on the fence. He even denied the Lord, but he came back. And the other disciples forsook him and fled, but they ended up all but Judas, faithful through prison and scourging and martyrdom and lonely exile. They paid the price. And down through the centuries, there's been a wonderful succession that has followed in their train. And all along the road, they've met opposers within and without, and they've never suffered half as much from antagonism as they have from appeasement. And the apostles have had opposers, but a thousand times more dangerous are the appeasers. As a matter of fact, this was not neutralism that they uh, practiced. They said, now let's not take a stand. And the next thing they did, they gave those fellows a beating. You call that neutralism? That's taking sides after all. Neutralism's never neutral. We can thank God that Gamaliel had one people who did not follow in his steps. Paul started out an opposer and he ended an apostle, but he never was an appeaser. 
you could always tell which side of the fence he was on. Whichever side he was on, he was on it with a vengeance. When he was against Christ, he was really against him. When he was for him, he was really for him, but he never sat on the fence with his famous teacher. He never could forget that he had opposed the church, but he never had to confess that he had appeased the opposition. The opposition slew him, but he outlived it just the same. And may God help us to follow him as he followed Christ. He was not neither nor. He was always either or. He sold out to Jesus Christ. Judas sold out to the devil. Gamaliel wouldn't sell out to Christ. The young ruler wouldn't do it. And no reason our Lord gave that rich young ruler the shock treatment instead of a massage. The reason why he said, set out if you're going to follow me. Because that fellow was of this very variety. Now these old apostles had sold out. And you couldn't do anything with that crowd. You put them in jail and an angel would let them out. I don't care what the interpreter's Bible says. <laughs> the interpreter's Bible says there was probably collusion with the jailer or maybe a defective lock. I like it the way it reads in the Bible. There's a touch of humor in it. You remember when the angel came and got Peter out of prison, he said, put your shoes on. In other words, we're not sneaking out of here. <laughs> We've got this situation well in hand. Now let's get up and go. Ah, this handful of fools for Christ's sake, no jail could imprison them, no court could intimidate them. And the answer to the opposition was, we ought to obey God rather than men. Either or. They were not placing Jesus Christ in the same category with Judas and Thutis and anybody else. They weren't waiting to see how the cause turned out as if it were nothing urgent and as if it could wait until they were good and ready to espouse it just like somebody may be doing here tonight. They were not waiting for anything. They had already cast their vote. They were not waiting with Gamaliel for all the facts to come in. All the necessary facts were already in. Christ had come, Christ had died, Christ had risen. What wait we for? What was Gamaliel waiting for? What's anybody waiting for? We're behind closed doors now, as uh, between Easter and Pentecost. And before closed doors and the Iron Curtain, we ought to be bursting out of prison doors and bursting into other doors. And we might, if there were fewer appeasers and more apostles. But you have to take a stand. And I could not close without just this word. In 19 and 12, the luxury liner, the Titanic, started on its first and last voyage. It carried all kinds of passengers, millionaires, social celebrities, people of moderate means, poor people in the steerage. Just a few hours later, the list in the Canard office in New York well, there were two lists. Lost, saved. And grim tragedy had leveled all other distinctions. Just two kinds. We're out on life's sea and there are scores of classifications. But when that voyage is over, my friend, it won't matter much whether you were rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. Julia Grady or the colonel's lady, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, whether you lived in the backwoods or on the boulevard, whether you drove a Cadillac or pushed an apple cart through town, all such distinctions will be trivial 
There'll be only two lists. Lost and saved. And they're already posted with this difference. That while you live and while mercy's door is open, you can change from lost to saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's either or and never an either nor. For he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There are two kinds of people here tonight that I'm tremendously interested in. We have some Christians here at Ben Lippin, some who have probably driven in tonight, who have never gone all out for Jesus Christ. And you say he's your Savior, but he's never been made your Lord, and it's a matter of come in, Savior, and stay out, Lord. And according to the New Testament, there isn't any such thing. And let me warn you tonight, it is not possible to get saved by taking Jesus as your Savior if uh, willfully and knowingly you reject him as your Lord. This idea that's been creeping around over America and has paralyzed so much of our church life that I can accept Jesus as my Savior and join the church and will I take him as Lord? No, I, I'm not willing to do that and get to heaven anyway. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I wish that this, by the Spirit of God I could land upon some word tonight that would dynamite your consciousness to realize what an awful state you're in if you are resting on such a false hope. I'm getting more and more concerned about these people. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Is he your Lord? No. Will you make him your Lord? No. You don't find that kind of Christian in the New Testament. And if you're here tonight, that sort of professing Christian, you're not a New Testament Christian, and I wouldn't lose any time getting down an aisle somewhere or onto my knees in prayer and saying, Lord, uh, I, I'm, I'm scared of this situation. I'm trying to get along on the installment plan. I'll take the Savior part and won't have the Lord part. Like a man going along a cafeteria taking what he likes and leaving the rest. You can't do that when it comes to what the New Testament says you must do. And you've never gone all out. And there may be a young fellow here tonight, several of them, a girl here tonight, some of you older folks, you're in church, maybe, and you've had opportunities and you know what to do, but you have never gone all out and said, Dear Lord, I give myself away. It is all that I can do. Where he leads, I'll follow. Have thine own way, Lord. You've sung it, yes, 500 times. He's not the Lord of your life. And then I'm concerned that we have some dear friends, I doubt not, in this fellowship who, if you died tonight, would be lost. And you've heard enough preaching to convert the whole state. And yet you've never, you, you're trying to sit on the fence with Gamaliel and all that host and say, well, I, I haven't made up my mind yet, but you have made up your mind. You're against him. And he that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad.